Any announcements or do we go for it? Anything? Are we good? Okay. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. How's everybody doing? I hope you've been blessed so far this weekend. Amen. One of my favorite weekends of the year. Amen. With the wonderful bread of life. Like I was sharing earlier today, that um, my first opportunity to speak to South Asians came from you guys. I thank you for that original invitation. It's been a wonderful I don't know, 15 years, 13, 14, thereabouts, many years now. And um, I thank God for the opportunity to spend some time with you again this weekend. I just want to get some feedback before we get into today's um, message. Based on what we've talked about so far from last night to this morning, let me just get some feedback. I know you've been discussing some of these things in your, in your, in your breakout groups. What are you learning? What is the Lord saying to you? What is resonating with your spirit on the material we've covered so far? Let me get a few people sharing. Anybody at all? What are you learning? See? The principle of vision. Amen. How it is absolutely vital. Amen. It is vital that we are people that are operating by divine vision. In fact, you know, one encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus... And the uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, had an encounter with the Lord. And if you remember in the book of Acts, when he was talking to the Roman officials, he said, I have not been unfaithful to the heavenly vision. He was letting the rulers of Rome know the reason why I kept on preaching, kept on building churches, is because I have not been unfaithful to the vision God gave me when I first encountered him to be an apostle to the Gentile nation. So Paul was sustained by vision. Something he saw, he chased after it. And as a byproduct of that chase, churches were built. Mission work was done. The Bible, three quarters of the New Testament, was written by a man chasing a divine vision. What else have we learned? So thank you. Go ahead. Say it again. Love always makes you see things differently. You don't see with your eyes. You see with your heart. That's why in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 15, Paul says what for, about the church, uh, 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 church in Ephesus. I pray daily that the Lord may... Let's, let's, let's go there. Let me show you something. Because if you don't get this, you don't understand the value of your heart being the center of your perception. Amen. So let's go to the book of uh, Ephesians. If you dare say Amen. David Timisoft. God is good. I need to learn how to say that in Hindi and in Tamil as well. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what the Bible says from verse from verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. 
So you can take me down just a little bit. Do not cease to give thanks for you. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding. Now some of you, uh, what does your scripture say? The eyes of your? Some say the eyes of your understanding. Some say the eyes of your what? The eyes of your heart. Because the word that was used there is cardia. And there's an understanding that it's referring to the eyes of your heart being enlightened. That you might know the hope of his calling. The first thing that happened when mankind fell is that their sight was affected. Are we okay? Are you aware of that? Let me take you to the book of Genesis so you can understand. Thank you for mentioning that. The reason why I want us to get this is for some of us, if you don't see clearly what the Lord wants you to see, cry like Badamias and say, Lord, open my eyes. Because when the Lord will open your eyes, he will show you keys. Sometimes the people you think are most difficult to reach, one wisdom key, once it's revealed to you, can bring some of the most difficult cases. Simple wisdom key. But you have to be able to see it so the enemy blinds you. Let me show you. The first thing affected when mankind fell was their eyes. Because here's the difference. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Ah, let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is good. If you're there, say Amen. Ah, you guys are fast. My Lord, my God. <laughs> oh, Jesus, help us. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I mean, chapter 3 from verse 1. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, we shall not eat of it, for in the day that we know shall we touch it, lest we die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. What is the devil proposing? The devil is proposing that your, your eyes are, are not open right now. question I have for you is this. Were the men and the woman blind? Could they see? So what is the enemy talking about? What's that? What? You think he's lying? Actually not. Yes, now watch this. Because what happened? As soon as they ate, the Bible tells us, then their eyes were open. So let's read along. Let's see what the Bible says. Amen. It says, uh, so in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took off its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7. Then the eyes of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. So the question that is simple is, weren't their eyes open before? What happened as soon as they ate? The Bible says, then their eyes were open. What do you think he's talking about? Pastor said the heart. How else can we break? If we are students studying the Bible, how do we unpack this? Lord, were these people blind before? Was the devil lying to them? Apparently it was true. Because as soon as they ate, what happened? Their eyes were open. What do you think it means? Yes, Scott. The knowledge of good and evil came into them, but they did not have the maturity or the spiritual stability to handle it. That could be true. 
I just want to break this verse, which is easy to avoid because it sounds controversial. Then their eyes were open. A good student asks, but were their eyes closed before? And we already said they were not blind. So what in the world is the Bible talking about? What do you think? Let's wrestle with the scripture. What's that? Ah, so were the eyes of the physical realm closed? How did they walk in the garden? The physical eyes? So were the physical eyes closed before that? Spiritual eyes were open, so their physical eyes were closed. Yes, sir. Say what? They lost their vision of, of which realm? Of the divine spiritual realm. Okay, we can argue. Good, good points, everyone, by the way. That's what good students do. They wrestle with the scripture. Let's let the Bible do the explaining. They ate of the tr- fruit. Then the Bible says, then their eyes were open. And the good student says, but Lord, what were their eyes before? Were they closed? And we all said no. So their eyes were open and we all said yes. And then their eyes were open again when they ate the truth and we said realms, right? We're talking about realms. Ah, The secrets. God help me. It says whose eyes were open? Their eyes. Whose eyes were open? Their eyes. Let's break it down this way. Who became the source of their sight? They became the source of their own sight. So therefore what happens? When you are the source of your own seeing, all you can see is what is available in this three-dimensional tangible world. You are actually right, my brother. It's just the way you were trying to explain it. You see, what was happening before that was that they were looking at each other from divine perception. So if I was looking at you from God's perspective, this outside is not important. Why? The spirit hidden within is what is most prominent. So watch this. When I'm looking according to spiritual perspective, your spirit man is who you really are. This thing is going to die. This thing you spend so much time pampering, you know, making sure it's, it's going to die, it's going to the ground. My parents died, I told you, in the last 35 days, both parents are dead. But the spirit on the inside does, lives on. So that's why Paul says, I know no man after the flesh. Do you know what he means? When I see you, my brother, I don't see your Indianness, I don't see your maleness, I don't see the fact that you're, I see you according to divine perspective. Your spirit is so prominent that your flesh hides in the background. Now, this is what's important. Before, this man was not the source of his own sight. He only saw from the perspective of God. So when God looks at creation, he sees something different. Because when you look at creation, you focus on the nakedness. You focus on what is lacking. You focus on what is not there. When God looks at it, he looks at it from divine perspective. I'll give you an example. In the book of Isaiah chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. Can we turn there? Let me show you something. Why was God calling Isaiah? Because the nation of Judah and Israel had walked away from God. You understand that? That's why the Lord was looking for a prophet to be a voice to the nation. Isaiah chapter 6. Let me show you the power of divine perspective. 
Now, some scholars believe that Isaiah was only 16 years old. And let me just say this. For most of us, everything we see in life is from our own perspective. That's why we are covered in fear. That's why when we think about tomorrow, we are shaking. That's why we are cowards. We hide because we only see things from our own perspective. I was tempted a couple of days ago when I found out, watch this, a few minutes, rather it was within an hour or so that I was supposed to be at the airport is when I first realized I cannot find my wallet. I was supposed to have been flying out at uh, what time? 12.43 in the afternoon. A few hours before that, I looked everywhere. I cannot find my ID. I looked everywhere. Could not find it. And so, but here's part of what the Lord was saying on the inside. Because in 24 years of ministry, I've never missed an appointment. I've never missed an appointment because of a disaster. Because that's why even as soon as my parents died, I had a meeting. I went and I did the ICPF meeting immediately after that. Within days, I was already preaching. Because I have a commitment before the Lord where I've never missed an appointment. So, but here's what's happening. Now, all of a sudden, it appears that this time you're going to miss it. Why? Because your flight leaves at 12.43 and within less than two hours of you leaving, you find out you cannot go anymore because you cannot find your wallet. So I'm looking everywhere and the clock is running and all of a sudden, something in me says you will not miss, it's not going to be the first time. So the faith is kicking in. Why? The natural sight is seeing there is no way I can be in Minnesota. The supernatural sight is saying I don't know how but it must happen. Why? Because of the track record of God, 24, 25 years straight, never missed an appointment. So now these are two perspectives competing. One looks logical. Anybody who's a logician, who's left brain, who are analytical can say, my brother, I don't see how it's going to work. Why? There's no way you can get everything in time and be at the airport in two hours and be able to go in. But something on the inside was keeping hope alive. And even as we're going back and forth with Reggie on the phone, something on the inside was... But here's what began to happen. I check on the phone and it tells the flight has been delayed. It now no longer leaves at 12.17. No, rather at 12.43. It leaves at 2.17. I'm like, okay, we've got a little bit more time. I keep on looking and the panic is setting in. But all of a sudden I look again and said, oh, the flight has been delayed a little bit more. It's been delayed by another 40 minutes. I'm thinking, Lord, we're, we're biding time. And then finally, in the evening, if you remember what happened, we, we called to say that, can we see if we can move? Uh, uh, Jacob got a hold of me. says, can we see if we can move the flight? But by the time we tried to move the flight, what had happened? Delta had already moved the flight to 750 by themselves. Now watch this. God is working it out. Why? There's a tale of two perspectives. The natural perspective says, there's no way you're going to, you're going to be there. But I'm looking at the track record of 24 years, and I say, Father, I don't know how. But I even thought about driving, by the way. I thought about, if I hop in the car right now, I'll be there in 15 hours. Because I, I, I cannot miss an appointment before God. I have a commitment before God. So now I'm looking and saying, I don't know how it's going to happen. And that's when Reggie says, you can go there even without an ID and you can try and explain everything. And we're looking. But by that time, we decided, let's move it from 7.50 to 8.15 the next morning. 8.15, I walk into Bradley Airport, right? I, I, usually, and I fly out of Bradley quite a lot. I'm always on the road. Every week I'm flying somewhere. If you, if you, I post it all the time on Facebook. You can see my flight schedule. I'm on a plane almost on a weekly basis. I get to Bradley and I know that Bradley is usually packed by 8 o'clock. The best flight for Bradley is if you leave at 5. If you leave at 8, it's usually a lot of people there. I get there, the line is completely empty. I get to the first TSA guy, and I say, Sir, I don't have my wallet with me. I cannot find it, but I have to fly to Minnesota. He was the nicest guy I ever met. He took me aside, and he says, Come on over. He worked everything out. Now, none of us, there was no extra expense, if you remember. We, couldn't cha- we didn't have to change the ticket. The flight that was supposed to leave at 12.43, now it's 8.15 in the morning, and I bypassed the entire line. 
I end up going through before the people that were in line because they took me aside to take me through, uh, you know, uh, more screening and more everything. Pastor, it was faster than if I'd stayed in line. So before I know it, 15 minutes or less, I'm already in the airport with my, with my flight that says you're going to be there at a particular time. When then uh, uh, Brother Jacob came to pick me up. What am I trying to share with you? You can be the source of your own sight because you are very intelligent people. Most of you work in mathematical related stuff, IT, you know, so you think very logically. So when it doesn't add up logically, it doesn't make sense to your sight. But now when you come into our faith, Christianity, and you're a child of God, you have to see with a different set of eyes. You have to see with eyes that bypass the natural. And they can see, even if they cannot explain it, they can see it. I don't know how we can do it, but we can get a bigger property. I don't know if we're going to make it, but my child is going to go to get that, that college space. I don't know if it's going to work out, but that job is going to open up before my visa runs out. You, there's a perception you plug into that is more than the natural. Now watch this. When sin came in, for the first time in creation, men began to see from their own resource. And when men began to see from their own resources, the first thing they noticed was what they did not have. So the man looked at the woman and says, you're naked. The woman looks at the man and says, no, you are naked. What is it? The natural eye is always aware of what is missing. Some call this the birth of what is called the scarcity assumption. The scarcity assumption is the source of all poverty. It's the source of all lack. Because it looks not at what is available, but it focuses on what is not there. Supernatural sight is like what God would give a man like Abraham. He promises him children like what? The sand on the seashore and like the stars in the heavens. How many kids does he have when he gets that promise? No kids. How old is he? Old. So then the question becomes, Lord, why would you burden this old man with a vision that is greater than anything he can naturally do? Because now, you see, you don't see from your own resources. You have got to now see from supernatural perspective. The problem most of us do is that we see with our own eyes. And so, in church, we counsel people that always feel that things are not, always a panic. Whenever the phone rings, Pastor, please, can you pray? Why? You know, please pray for me because I just don't see how this is going to work out and I just don't see. And I always ask most of the people that say that to me, has the Lord come through for you before? And they said, yes. How many times? Uh, Pastor, many times. So what makes you think he's going to fail now? Don't let the enemy always point out at what God has not done. Have eyes that always see what God does. Let me t- what I wanted to show you in the book of Isaiah was what? Isaiah, here's how you must know about divine perspective. It says this in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a high throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his feet. With two he covered his face. And with two he flew. And one cried to another. What were the angels saying? Holy, holy, holy is what? The Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? It's full of his glory. Wait a minute. What was the real situation on the earth? Why was Isaiah taken into the heavenly places? Because the nations of Judah and Israel had walked away from God. So what does that mean? It means that most of us, all we see when we look at the world is the sin. We see the brokenness. 
we see the lack we see the hurt we see the pain we see the poverty so we cry from human perspective oh lord there's just so much t- trouble what are the angels looking at they're not looking at what is wrong with the world what are they looking at they're looking at what is right with the world and what is right with the world they saw the earth filled with god's glory and they focused not on what the devil was doing but on what the glory of god was doing the angels were looking at the same earth that you and I would complain about. Oh my Lord, you know, this nation is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh Father, look at what Modi is doing in India. Oh my God, look at this and look at that. Always focusing on the terrible. But when the angels look, all they say is, it's filled with the glory of God. It's filled with the glory of God. It is filled with the glory of God. So in heaven, they are worshipping the Lord by what? By the power of divine perception. What earth is that? That is filled with glory. It's earth from heaven's perspective. Why? God does not focus on what the devil is doing because he's too focused on what he is doing. And he sees the glory. That's why he can look at uneducated fishermen and he can tell them, in three and a half years, you will turn the world upside down. Why? Because the world sees an an uneducated man. I see an apostle through whom the power of God is going to flow. Ah, the world looks at fishermen, uneducated, cannot even read. Do you know that Second Peter, Peter writes and says what? This I have written in my own hand. Do you know why that is a, why that is a key statement? Because it appears that first Peter, he didn't write with his own hand. He dictated it. Why? Because it was believed the man could not read or write. Because most of the people in the, in, in, in the New Testament church that worked the kind of jobs that these guys worked were not educated. They were not synagogue scribes, Pharisees, Essenes. They were regular blue-collar workers. So what is it? That's who God chose. Why? Because heaven's perspective is different. The Lord sees not based on what you can't do. He looks at you based on what he can do through you. So with whose eyes do you see? If we look at it by our own eyes, the world is winning and we are losing. If we look at it by our own eyes, the church is just a marginalized group, you know, because it seems like the world has an upper hand, the sinful have an upper hand. But when we look from divine perspective, we always see its potential for the glory of God to shine. We see Minnesota as a city that is ready for the taking. We see every neighborhood as a neighborhood that can be claimed for Christ. We don't complain about that mosque or that temple. We don't care. We care about lifting up the banner of the name of Jesus. It says, then their eyes were open and that was the problem. They began to see out of their own resources. And the first thing they noticed was what they did not have. That's the dilemma of human thinking. Human thinking, birth is what is called what? What I told you, the scarcity assumption. What is scarcity assumption? It's the assumption that there is not enough to go around. It is the reason why Cain killed Abel. Why? Because he felt that the rejection, there was not enough love in God for both sons. Because the other son was loved, it means I am not loved. And so he becomes jealous, you see, because when you don't think about scarcity, you have no reason to be jealous of anybody. You are not jealous. If God lifts up another one, you celebrate with them. Why? Because you know that God who can lift them up can one day lift me up. But when we come from a place of scarcity, when one rises, we think that we have fallen. So that's when jealousy and envy is found in the house of God. It's what causes you to be territorial. The scarcity assumption. There's enough anointing for every one of us. There's enough power in God for all of God's children. But the enemy makes you feel as if there's not enough to go around. So we become tight. 
we become unable to give toward the things of God. Well, if I give, then I won't have enough. And we are like this. We have a hard time giving God a tithe. A penny in every dollar. You know, oh, I don't know if I can do that. You know, 10 cents in a dollar, right? We, we don't know how to give God 10 cents in a dollar. Ah, you know, because if I give 10 cents, you know, I'm only going to have 90 cents left. You know, scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. So because that's the way we see, it's the way we live. And we are always near panic. Because there's no sense of abundance. Let me tell you one thing about God. God is abundant. He didn't make you, you, made, you came from two single cells, but now you are close to 10 trillion cells. Because those two initial cells from your mom and from your dad are now a, tra- a colony of 10 trillion cells. Why? Multiplication, exponential growth. God thinks abundance. He doesn't think lack. So the question I have is, with whose eyes do you see? Yours? That's why you've got high blood pressure. (laughs) If you see from God's eyes, your heart rests at night. The Bible says what? He gives his beloved sleep. What what was Jesus doing on the boat in the middle of a storm? Fast asleep. Why? You know, panicking. Oh, do you not care that we're going to die? The Lord Jesus said, what are you talking about? What the storm and all this and all that, what about it? Well, don't you think we're going to die? What did I tell you when we were on the other side? You said we're going to the other side. Are we at the other side yet? No. So why are you disturbing me? I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> why? I told you we're going to the other side. Are we there yet? No, we're not. Why are you panicking? If I say we're going to the other side, guess what? We are going to the other side. Oh, but Lord, can't you see the storm? Can't you see the wind? No. Can you not see the peace that is in the heart of God? So when Jesus stood up, do you know what Jesus did? The peace that was on the inside of him. He superimposed it on his environment. And he said, shh. And the, mountain, the storms and the winds became as calm as the inside of Jesus. The tranquility that was on the inside, he superimposed it on his environment. He probably went back to sleep after that. Don't wake me up again until we get there. Why? Well, did you see how terrible? No, I don't focus on what's terrible. Because if you focus on what's terrible, you'll never do anything for God. The Bible says, he who watches the wind will not sow in the book of Proverbs. Do you know what that means? Do you know what he who watches the winds will not sow? Do you know what it means? Talk to me. What do you think it means? He who watches the wind will not sow. Brother Jacob. If you're looking for perfect circumstances, you will never do anything for God. I heard one brother say to me, you know, Brother Felix, you know, when do I, I, I can't wait until I feel like I'm ready for ministry. And you know, can I, can I be honest with you? Can I be honest tonight? I don't feel ready right now. In the 24 years, 26 years, that between 24 and 26, I've been full-time ministry. I've never felt ready. So I don't know what people talk about when they say, well, do you ever feel prepared that today now you're ready? I don't feel ready right now. If I had it up to myself, I think that maybe in the next 10 years I should be ready to preach. But thank God that he doesn't consult the way I see. He consults the way he sees. Because the first time I was invited to speak, I already disqualified myself because I did not feel I was good enough. I did not think I thought systematically enough. I didn't think I had the right articulation or the ability to... No. Up until this day. Do you know the reason why I wasn't coming in for the meals? I'm nervous every time before I preach because I'm wondering, Lord, tonight, if you don't move, they'll see how useless I am. If you don't show up, Father, they'll find out that I don't know how to do this. I've never known how to do it. So what are you waiting for? For the bell to ring that says, now you're ready. It's never going to happen. There's no bell. It means what? You have got to train your eye to see what the Lord sees. 
So part of my prayer that I've learned before I come out to preach and I say to the Lord, somehow you've found me worthy. So today I want to share your opinion. Because if you think that I'm the one to speak to them, I accept that assignment today. And I come in and I let it go and I go back to the room and say, Father, you did it again. 26 years, you've never failed. You've always showed up. You've always come in. In the middle of preaching, you hear God speaking through your own words. And you say, my goodness, Lord, you did it again. Most people wait for favorable circumstances. You're waiting for the perfect time to start the home Bible study. You're waiting for the perfect time to begin to attend, you know, small groups. You're waiting for the perfect time to be the intercessor you've always wanted to be. You're waiting for, oh, if this, I, I had a brother say this to me one time. Well, you know, pastor, you know, I've been believing God for a child. So I said, well, so I, I'm not going to get into the ministry until the Lord fulfills his promise to give me the child he, that he promised me. At that time when I met this brother, he and his wife had been barren for eight years. They'd been married for eight years and they'll be living God for a child. So first of all, I said, are you waiting for a child before you can serve God? Why don't you serve God right now? Well, brother, because he promised me and for eight years he's not come through. So then I prayed with the brother. I said, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, not one, but give them as many as they need. They got three now. But I went back to the church a few years later and the brother is not in church. I said, where is so and so? I called him. Well, you know, brother, you know, uh, the kids, you know, um, they were not feeling well and it's a school night. So I'm like, wait a minute. You said you didn't want to serve the Lord because you didn't have kids. And now that you have kids, you're still not in church because you said the kids. Now, you know what they start telling each other? Wait until these kids graduate. I'm really going to go for God. You know, when these kids are in, in college, David and Stotter, I'm going to preach because they'll be out of the house. There will never be a day. Let me tell you this. We all have 24 hours in our day. I have 24 hours in my day. So do you. Trust me, whatever you think are your stresses, we also feel that. Right, Pastor? We go through the same family situations. We go through the same feelings that everybody else goes through. So here's the thing I'll tell you. If you find another man or a woman of God who is closer to God than you, they don't have 27 hours in their day. They also have 24 hours just like you. They also have got mouths to feed. They also have the stresses of life. But they just choose to prioritize the things that depend on heaven. So what I'm saying is this. If you are waiting for a perfect environment to serve God, you have to wait until you get to heaven. But the only problem is your service is not needed there. Are we okay? Oh, my brother, just wait a little bit until when I graduate seminary. Ha! You will see. No, you're ready right now. Let him use you now. Because you will graduate and here's what will happen. You still won't feel ready. That's the secret. In fact, the problem is this. If you feel ready, then you're definitely not ready. Yeah, no. If you ever feel like, ah, I'm good now. Now I'm really ready. No. That, you see, that is called self-confidence. And let me tell you one thing. The Lord has to damage your self-confidence in order for him to build up confidence in God. Some of us, we're too self-confident because we are told we're so good at certain things when we're young. Ah, money, you're very good at this, you know? Ah, you're very good. So you're like, I'm very good. Don't ever be very good at anything. Always depend on God. You see, Peter was very self-confident. Me, ah. Wait and see. I'm going to go for God and I'm going to do this and I'm going to, and the Lord had to wait. Ah, son, you're too confident. You need to get knocked down. And when he got sufficiently knocked down, that's when the Lord Jesus Christ came to him. And now he doesn't want ministry now because now he feels he's not good enough, right? Ah. He says, Simon, do you love me? Ah, Lord, you know. Ah. Do you want to preach? Ah. Not good enough. Now I want you to feed my sheep. 
Lord, why do you wait until I fall to call me into the ministry? Because now you know that it's got nothing to do with your own ability. Now you can depend on God. When did Peter become ready for the ministry? After he denied Jesus. Why? Because his self-confidence was shattered. And what? Confidence in God was born. Now it wasn't about my ability and my skill and I know this and I'm great at that. Now it was, Lord, use me for your own good. Catherine Kuhlman used to say this. Lord, if you can use nothing at all, use me. I'm not talented. I don't know how to sing. I don't know how to speak. I'm not even good looking. That's what Catherine Kuhlman used to say. But if you can use nothing, Lord, here I am. Use this. And she'll get up on stage and miracle signs and wonders will break out in the auditorium. Why? Because the greatest gift you can offer God is not your ability. The greatest gift you can offer God is your availability. But in order for you to be available, you've got to see from divine perception that the only thing special about you and me is the God we serve. And now that I see soberly, I see myself soberly, what does that mean? With true perception of the fact that you remove God out of the equation in my life, I fall flat. You put God in there. I'm a giant killer. I'm a, I can run through a troop and, and leap over a wall. That's what David says. What? Blessed be the Lord my rock who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to do battle. David never thought his military skill was based on his own ability. He knew it was a divine enablement that came from God. So he says, by my God, I can bend a bow of bronze. By my God, I can run through a troop. By my God, I have chased after my enemy and I overtook him. And when they rose up against me, I beat him as fine as dust and threw him out like dirt on the street. Why? By my God. What is that perception that comes in when you see from God's point of view? Are we okay? Get some young people come. Oh, you know, pastor, you know, I, I, I just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm because I'm young. I'm like, because you're young? Why does young even have to come into the conversation? Well, you know, I'm young. I'm like my brother when I was 22 years old. I was in charge of people that were in their 40s and their 50s. Never once did I consider the fact of my age. You, you know what I found out? When you're leaning on God, you lean on the ancient of days. God is older than any man I know. So that means what? When I plug into his anointing, I become a veteran. Not because I've lived long enough, but because I'm plugged into the ageless one. The one who was there before the world began. What is that perception? Perception makes you lean into God. And once you plug into God, whatever he can do, he can do through you. But you know that it is him all the time. Are we okay? All right. What else did we talk about? We said vision. What else did we say? Love. Most people don't walk in love because love is not convenient. Love is not convenient. Any parent here can tell you. Mothers, does your child ask you, Mom, can I cry now? But if you have a headache, I totally won't cry. No. Headache or no headache, they'll cry. They don't ask, so Mom, are you okay? Or are you too tired? Because you know what? I can, I can sleep all night until they're no. 3 a.m., they'll still cry. Love is not convenient. 
It makes no appointments. Love means available all the time. But love is the most powerful force we can have because once love is there, you can look at anybody and you can believe the best for them because that's what love does. You look at even the least capable in the natural and you think they can conquer the world because once you allow love to become the function of your heart. You know, I've been around even certain men and women of God that don't have the highest opinion of church members. I had one pastor at one time, um, you know, he says, well, um, you know, Felix, I know my people, you know, and he was talking about a particular group of people, like an ethnic group. These people, they don't like to give, my brother. They don't like giving. He, He needed money for a particular mission, and he says, these people, they don't like giving. So guess what the people did? Never gave. So I was sitting in a pastor's house one day and I said, Pastor, why, why do you keep saying that? Oh, my brother, I've known them. I've been, I've been amongst them all my life and I'm, they don't like giving. So I asked him, can you let me take the offering? Okay. And I just went in there and I said, I know you people love the Lord. I know you love the Lord because anytime there's an opportunity to show up for God, you show up for God. There's a need here for the kingdom of God and you have the capability to fulfill it. And pastor says, ah, it's only because you said it. I said, no. I, they gave because I absolutely believe that they love God or they would not show up in church. I believe that they love God or they will not show up for, for spiritual things. But because I absolutely believe, I also believe, I absolutely, my, the love I have makes me believe they're great givers. So because I believe it, guess what? They gave. Oh, 20,000, 30,000, raise for the mission. I said, yes. Oh, you know, you know I'm, I'm like, everywhere I go, the Lord has taught me that what you think about people is what you get. Why? Love makes you think great things can come out of people that everybody else thinks they are failures. And that's why great things can come out of them. Love is the key that Christ used. Do you know that the day that Jesus called Judas, he already knew Judas was going to betray him. But he still gave him a chance. Come on and walk with me. Come and help me. Even though when he looked at him, he knew that someday you... But he still gave him a chance. Why? Love. The evening that Judas betrayed Jesus, who was the first person that Jesus served at the table? Judas. Broke bread, gave him to drink first. Why? Even when you look at... What what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me? Satan. What did Jesus say to Judas? Are you going to betray me with a kiss? Friend. Called Peter, Satan. (laughs) Called Judas, friend. Why? Divine perspective. Are we okay? Can you guys handle 15 minutes? A little bit more? I want to show you something here because tonight, if the Lord is willing, I do want to pray for what I believe is what is, is the activation of the leadership. And when I talk about leadership here, I don't mean to usurp your leadership in the church. I mean at your workplace, in your neighborhood, is the ability to step up and avail yourself to solve a problem. Because anytime something happens, everyone steps back to see who's going to solve the problem. That's the problem with most people. They don't have the initiative to step up and take care of things that need to. What did I tell you about David? When he went to the front line this morning, I told you, and he saw Goliath, what did David do? Did he say, oh, I wonder if somebody's going to take care of this, you know? I wonder who. He didn't say, let's hold hands. Let's believe that God is going to raise up somebody to take care of Goliath. My father, raise up a man of God. who take. No. He immediately said what? If there's a job that needs to be done and somebody needs to do it, might as well be me. What is that? It's a leadership call and a leadership anointing. Are we okay? What is the problem in the world today? 
The problem in the world today is a story that was described by a young man by the name of Jothan, who was one of the sons of Gideon. And I want us to look at that scripture because it's going to show us something. The book of Judges, if you can, if you got your Bibles, please. The book of Judges. And I want us to go, if we can, to, I believe it's going to be chapter 9. I'll give you the background story. Jerubal, who is Jerubal? Does anybody know who Jerubal is? Who is Jerubal? Gideon. Why? Because when Gideon first became the judge in Israel, one of the first things he did was to cut the oak tree where Baal was worshipped. And when the people rose up against Gideon to say, why did you cut that tree, that sacred tree? He says what? Let Baal contend for himself. Meaning, why are you fighting for Baal? If Baal is a god, let him fight for himself. So that's why they gave him the name Jerubel. Meaning what? Let Baal contend for himself. That was the nickname of Gideon. Now it says this, Abimelech, the son of Jerubel, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers. And he spoke with them, with all the family of, of the house of his mother's father, saying, please speak to the hearing of all the men of Shechem, which um, is better for you, that all 70 sons of Jerubel reign over you, or that one reign over you. And also re- remember that I'm your flesh and blood. Now let me tell you what Abimelech was trying to do. Gideon had just died. Gideon had 70 sons. Jerubel, one of the sons of Gideon, went to his mother's people. And he said to them, listen, my father is dead. And so one of the sons of Gideon is going to rule over Israel. What do you prefer? Do you prefer all 70 sons to rule? Or do you prefer if one of them rules, who's your own flesh and blood? What was he saying? Vote for me. Why? If you vote for me, I'm your own flesh. I'll take care of, you, of, of, of everyone. So the men of Shechem, they did not look at the heart or the quality or the character of Abimelech. They looked at him from a tribal perspective. They voted for him because what? He is our own flesh and our own blood. But Abimelech was a cruel young man. So in order for him to secure his throne, he went to all his other brothers and he killed them all on one rock. He slaughtered all what? There was about, uh, let me see, 68 of them. Why I say 68 is because the youngest one ran away. The young one was called Jotham. He heard all your other brothers have been killed by Abimelech. Now he's coming after you. So Jotham ran away. The youngest son of Jeroboam, of Gideon, ran away. And after running away, he decided, I'm going to confront the men of Shechem. Why? How could you choose such a cruel man to rule? But instead of just yelling at them, he gave them one of the most powerful parables about leadership you'll find anywhere. And this is the parable of the trees. So here's the story. It says this. Verse 7. Now when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried out to the men of Shechem. And he said, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they say to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree say to them, should I cease giving oil? which they honor God and men, and go and sway over the trees. Then the trees went to the fig tree and said, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I seize my sweetness and my good fruit 
and go and sway over the trees. Then the trees went to the vine. And they said, you come and reign over us. But the vine said, should I seize my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go and sway over the trees? So the trees went to the bramble. And they said, you come and reign over us. And then the bramble, what is a bramble? It's a thorn bush. It doesn't even have a major stem. It's just a, just a bush filled with thorns. It bears no fruit. But when the trees went to the bramble, and they said, will you reign over us? The bramble said, sure, I'll reign over you. But only on this condition, that all of you come under the shadow of the bramble. And if you step outside of my shadow, may fire fall from heaven and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Let me tell you what the story means. It means that society was looking for a leader. So the trees first went to the olive tree. What do you think the olive tree represents? Come on, Christians. What do we get from olives? Uh, anointing oil. What is the base of the oil of anointing? Olive oil. When the Lord was instructing Moses to make the, uh, the oil by which to anoint Aaron, it was supposed to be made of calamus, sweet cane, um, I think uh, cinnamon, right? Um, I think there was myrrh that was in there, but it also was put in a hin of oil, a whole basin of oil. Oil is symbolic of the anointing. So what do the trees do? They went to the anointed ones, you tongue-talking ones. I love Jesus, I'm anointed. And the trees came and said, sir, you're anointed. You're a good man and you love Jesus. Can you reign over us? And you know what the anointed people said? I'm too busy being anointed. I've got no time to sway over the trees. Let me tell you the story of here in America. Out of the second great awakening, men of God rose up and they knew that in order for this nation to do well, they had to establish you know, uh, schools of higher learning to train up men of God. So a pastor by the name of John Harvard began what we now know as the Harvard Institute. It was not there as a secular humanist uh, college. It was there to raise up men and women of God. Because coming out of the, one of the great awakenings, they realized we have got to prepare people to be the next leaders and the next presidents. So Christians knew that we had to put something together. But you know what happened? A few short years after that, the Christians began to move out of higher learning because they said, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. So they left politics, they left education, they left medicine, and they all met in churches and waited for Jesus to come. But while they left education, secular humanists moved in, and they took over Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, all those were started by men of God as a byproduct of the Second Great Awakening. After the awakening happened, major, what we call the Ivy League schools, were all started by men and women of God because they knew that we had to educate the next generation. But the problem that happened is what? A generation rose up that says, I don't want to do that. I'm too anointed to mess around with education. So they all stood in churches behind closed doors and they spoke in tongues. Hey, waiting for Jesus to come back. And Jesus didn't show up. By the time they decided we need to take over education, the vacuum we had left was now occupied by atheists who did not believe in our God. And so when you look at schools like Harvard, began the bastions of social Darwinism, came from Harvard University. And you wonder, how can an institute that was based after for preacher, John Harvard, which was supposed to send men and women to, to, to the world, how did we lose that? Because the olive trees were too anointed to lead. At your workplace, here's what I find out when I go to corporate America. How many of you have ever worked under a bad supervisor? 
Like they don't know how to work. Anybody at all? Who, who's ever had a bad? Oh, none of you have had bad supervisor. God bless you. Lift both hands up. The question I have is this. How do people like that end up in leadership positions? They don't know how to deal with people. They don't know how to get... How, why is it that they... Do you know what they say in corporate America? 80% of the people that leave their job are not quitting their job. They are quitting their boss. So that means what? Somewhere, somehow, people that don't know how to deal with people end up in authority. And it's usually because the good people are too busy being good to lead. An opportunity comes at your workplace for somebody to solve a problem. Most of the Christians are... So what, what happens? A person who is very ambitious and has a wrong heart rushes to the forefront. Most of you, whenever somebody else appears to be taking over the realm, you would rather hold back. Because, ah, you know, me and God, we don't need to push ourselves forward. Do you know why David killed Goliath? Can I tell you why? Because he found out there was a price for it. He overheard them say what? Uh, he says, what's going to happen to the guy that kills this guy? They said, oh, you won't ever pay taxes again. Oh, that's nice. What else? And you marry the king's daughter. He said, give me my sling. <laughs> what is that? We all think he's so holy, he's so righteous. He's not, he, was self, he went to self-market himself before, before Saul. I know I can solve this problem. Even his brother said what? Oh, you are such an arrogant and such an insolent. You know, you are so, you know. No, he offered to help. Why? Because nobody else was stepping up. He stepped up. Let me, can I tell you the dilemma? The dilemma we have in the world right now is that there will never be a leadership vacuum, but there will always be a leadership crisis. Do you know why, Mahesh? Because whenever the rightful person does not take a leadership position, it doesn't leave that position empty. It just means the wrong person will occupy it. Are we okay? Step up! Step up! Most, most men and women of God are so, because they think it's humility. They think humility, ah, you know, you go ahead. I know, he says, you, you do it. You know, I'm, I'm good, I won't. No, that is a refusal, an abdication of responsibility. It creates a vacuum. Maybe you are in the nursing field, and now the head nurse is this cruel person who has no compassion. You're a wonderful person, why aren't you leaving? Because more times than not, we don't step up to take the role, because we don't want to be political, it's too pushy, there's too many of this, I'll just step back, and what are you doing? You're like the olive tree that is telling the trees, I'm too anointed to lead. Does it mean the trees are going to say there's no leader? No. It means that the trees will go to the next person. So they went to the fig tree, and they said to the fig tree, can you come and reign over us? And what did the fig tree say? What, what, what do you think is representation of the fig tree? Fig tree produces what? Very nutritious fruit. So what do you think it's, a, it's speaking of? Of what? Power, maybe? What type of people will be fig, will be fig tree people? What's that? Skilled. Capable people. Fruitful people. Some of the most amazingly gifted people I know are Christians. I know, I, I, my goodness, man, I know people that are such problem solvers. I know men of God and women of God that if they're given a very complex, complicated situation, they can, who is a fig tree in the Bible? In the Bible, it's Daniel. What is Daniel? He's a problem solver. He's a fruitful vine. He's a fruitful, fruitful tree. So what does he do? When a crisis comes in to, to Babylon that no other wise man can answer, what does Daniel say? He goes to Nebuchadnezzar to the chief eunuch and says, Sir, give me a chance with my God. 
Because between my God and myself, we will come up with a solution for this problem. What is that? Fruitful. What does fruitful mean? It means now, when you step up, now watch this. Daniel went to Babylon in chains as one of the captives of Judah. But by the time he was an old gentleman, he was the third in command in the Babylonian kingdom and in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians ruled from the Middle East all the way to India. One of the most vast territory ever to be put under one banner was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And third in command in that was Daniel. Still prayed three times a day. Still fasted. Still tithed. Still had a home group at his home. Still went to church and was involved. The most spiritual man of his day did not spend every day in church. He spent every day in what? In the hallways of power in the political realm, shining the torch of Jesus. Who else was a fruitful man, a fig tree? It was Joseph. Here's what a lot of people don't understand about Joseph. Joseph, his anointing to interpret dreams did not make him run the Egyptian economy. Can I explain what I mean by that? Father, help me. His ability to interpret dreams gave him his freedom. You understand? The supernatural part of him gave him his freedom. Why? Because Pharaoh had a dream that nobody knew or could answer. And Joseph said, let me plug into the anointing and solve your problem. And he says, here's what you, what you did. You dreamt about what? About seven cows, right? That were fat. You know? And then after that, you dreamt about seven cows that were skinny. And the seven cows that were skinny ate the seven cows that were fat, but still they did not gain any weight. Let me tell you what that is. What is he doing? He's now prophesying. Let me tell you the prophetic dream. The prophetic dream is that for seven years, Egypt is going to experience a bumper harvest. There will be food that will be plenteous. But after those seven years of plenty, it will be followed by seven years of famine, where there will not be a blade in the grass and there will be hunger everywhere. So now when Joseph interpreted that dream, what did Pharaoh say? Take his chains off, you're free. But Pharaoh still had another question that the supernatural could not answer, but the practical man could answer. And he says, what do I do? And, and, and what did Joseph say? You need a man with a plan. A plan to do what? That in the seven years of plenty, you need a man that knows how to administer, that knows how to run things, to collect and put all your excess food in silos so that in the seven years, what did he do? is anointing to interpret dreams gave him his freedom. But the genius on practical matters gave him authority in the kingdom. Because all these years while he was working in the house of Potiphar, he was figuring out how to run things. He was figuring out how to manage things. You know what I found out? That one of the greatest gifts in the faith is the gift of administration. It's knowing how to put the right people in the right place. It's not the charisma to preach. It's the ability to place the right people in the right. It's the gift of administration. The difference between Peter and Paul was the Paul was charismatic in the preacher, but Paul was a systematic guy. He knew how to put things in order. That's why he wrote three quarters of the New Testament. He established more churches than the people that walked with Jesus. Because it's more than about the power of preaching. In fact, when he compared his preaching to Apollos, he says what? I am not as gifted in preaching as Apollos. But as the, according to the grace given to me, as a, what? as a wise master builder. Meaning what? I don't know how to preach. 
but I know how to administer. I know how to organize. I know how to... So what does Paul do? He looks at the map of Asia. We need a church in Corinth. We need another one in Ephesus. We need Rome, I didn't plant that church, but I need something. I need a say in that church. So how do I penetrate Rome? I'll send them a letter. That's who systemize theology. What it's doing is the gift of organization. It's the fruitful tree. It's one who may not be that great at the pulpit, but he's learned other skills that enable him to be useful for the kingdom of God. Are we okay? Ah, God help me. So, <laughs> when you look at David, we use David as an example. Well, David, my brother, he, he just moved with the annoying thing. I want to say something that will give you a, a true picture of I got my breakthrough in preaching. How did it happen? I was preaching on a Saturday morning, right? Pastor, I was preaching, and the Lord gave me the ability to think and speak without stuttering. But you know what I had to do after that? Practice. How often? Every day. When I was in Bible college, what did I have to do? My, 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 the guy that shared the cubicle with me, the, you know, the dorm room, I would wake up on a Saturday, and you'll see me wearing a suit, getting dressed. Are you going to preach somewhere? Yeah. Where? The mirror. Why? Nobody's invited me. So, I gotta preach. So, what I, I used to dress up, wear a suit, stand in front of the mirror. I greet you all in the name of Jesus. And I want you to open your Bibles to this. My, I would preach myself happy. I'm, out, I'm preaching the word of God. I'm the, I take an offering. I give my own offering. I spend my own offering. I go lay hands on myself. I fall under the power of God. I went and just had church for a long time before anybody asked me to preach. I used to preach in quietness behind closed doors. Why? Because I knew that so when the day comes, I don't want to bore you people. I don't want to, I don't want to hold you hostage for an hour and you, your interest is not there. You don't care about it. You're like just waiting for everything. No, you have to be engaging. How does that come? Skill. What is skill? Practice. How do you practice? Over, 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 over. Make the mistake, get up and do it again. Make the mistake, get up, do it again. So here's the difference between David and every other man. When Goliath spoke, it was more than the anointing that won the day. It was the anointing and the what? The skill that was learned in private. What skill did David have? Pick up a stone. Pick up a sling. Oh my goodness. How many of you have ever used a sling? Why, you people were using guns already in India? You're so fancy. I'm from Africa. We didn't have guns. What do you have to do? Learn to use a sling. Do you know how difficult it is to use a sling? Do you know how many times you hit yourself with a rock before you get it right? Because when you go one, two, three, if you let go too late, that rock is coming right back to you. Ow! So what does David do? Over and over again. Over and over again. Over and over again. Now he's getting better. Now his aim is getting better. Now his aim is getting better. What? Even though I, I, it takes the anointing and the gifting of God, when the Lord then gives me that gift, I work on it to make it the best I can because it's the only way I can honor my God by becoming the best I can. Okay, so he gave me a little bit of an instrument to play a guitar. I can understand. So what do I do? I practice over and over again. Why? Because if I'm going to do it for my God, I have to be as skillful as I can. What what is skill? It is time spent in private laboring to sharpen the little thing that God gave you. Most people don't improve what God gave them. They don't improve on it. They don't work on it. Ah, you know, brother, if God wants to use me, no. Get better. Get better. Work on the skill. If you're a keyboard player, learn more chords. Learn how to augment them. If you're a singer, work through your scales, man. What does that mean? Do re mi fa sol la ti do. Do re mi fa sol la ti do. Go an octave, octave higher. Learn how to what? Because some of the best singers we have right now are also some of the hardest working people in sharpening their gift. 
when Whitney Houston was the best singer in the world, she had a voice trainer who came from a preacher's family. His name is B.B. Winans. B.B. Winans is one of the most difficult voice trainers because he doesn't mess. He will work you until you get it right. Because if you go off a little bit, he says, do it again. So when this woman was the most celebrated singer in the world at that time, she was still the hardest working singer behind closed doors. Why? It's not enough to have that little gift. How much time do you put in sharpening it for God as an act of worship? Look at the two skills that David mastered. One was with a sling. It held him against Goliath. The other was with a harp. It helped him gain entrance into the house of Saul. Because when Saul will be overcome by a demon, he says, is there a man who can what? Who can play an instrument well? What does playing an instrument well show you? This young boy put in the time to work on this thing until he mastered it. What am I asking you? The trees go to the fruitful. <laughs> and say, you fruitful ones, can you come and reign over us? You people of skill, you people that are problem solvers. The problem with the skillful people is what did they say to the trees? Ah, you know, I, I don't have time for that. Why, I'm just, you know, I don't, I don't have time, my brother. I'm just bearing so much fruit, you know. I don't have time to be leading all you people. So what did the trees do? They go to the vine. Who is the vine? The vine speaks of what? The new wine. What do we get the new wine? When we talk about new wine, what are we talking about? Holy Spirit. But in, its, in the measure of giftedness, right? When the Spirit of God came in the book of Acts, they said, oh, they're drunk. And what did Peter say? They are, they are not drunk as you suppose. What did he say? They're drunk, but not the way you suppose. This is the Spirit of God. So I've been in Pentecostal churches where some people are they are supernaturally gifted, they're effervescent, they are happy people, they love God, they're always positive, they're always smiling, always happy. The trees went and said, you that know Jesus, you tongue talkers, can you come and reign over us? Meaning, can you come and lead us? And what did the tongue talkers say? I'm too busy talking in tongues, brother. I've got no time to exercise leadership amongst you heathens. I've got no time for you. Why? Because in church, I'm going all night prayer meeting. So all night they were so total that I'm a kind of deva pitavi, angenyan, pavanat mavi, angenyan. Oh Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, oh, and we're having good time in the presence of God, but we're exercising no leadership in the world. So guess who ends up in charge? All the people that don't know God. The leadership of this nation is going is really in a bad state right now. I'm talking about leadership in the country. I don't care what your political stripe is, whether it's Congress or even the top, you know, administration. We have a leadership crisis, not just in this nation. Now Britain is following suit, and not just that, but in my own country, you go to Africa, everywhere there's a leadership crisis in the nations of the world today. Why? Because what happens is this: when the rightful people don't step up and show a leadership inclination, people that have no business being in charge of anything end up taking leadership position. And that's exactly what the world is in a, in a crisis right now. In your workplace, in our schools, in our colleges, is that the rightful ones anointed by God. Samuel, whenever you go, whatever the Lord does for you, whatever college you end up to, always step up and always accept an opportunity to lead in your generation. Because if you don't, you'll be forced to follow somebody who may not know, God, not know our God. Step up. But if I step up and they make fun of me, that's what David's brothers, they made fun of him when he said, let me take care of this. They said, you insolent, you, you are so narciss narcissistic. How, what do you think you can do? It doesn't matter. Whenever you show up, people will always make fun of you. I have found out that the people that attack the people the most are the people doing nothing. On Facebook, you hear people say, 
Ah, this Joel Osteen, you know, you know, he's not deep in the word, man. You look at him, he's just so shallow in the word. And I said, my brother, you're deep, but I've never heard you preach. Yeah. How are you gonna how are you gonna criticize somebody doing more than you? At least he's preaching. He knows three verses, but he's using his three verses. You know a hundred, and nobody's blessed by anything you're doing. It's easy to criticize people doing stuff. Whenever people step up and they begin to do things for God, there will always be those that point a finger and criticize. And it's usually people doing nothing. Because you've got plenty of time on your hands when you do nothing to criticize those that are in the game. Are we okay? What am I asking you to do? Simple. Step up. Step up. Why? Because we already talked about love. You already love God and you love people. If you don't lead, then who does? Step up. Volunteer in your, in your community. Volunteer. Volunteer. Step up and be, be consequential in your, in your generation. Because You know what I found out? So for me, for example, when we were at, at, at Eagle's Wings, you've been to our church before, Brother Jacob. Let me tell you about Eagle's Wings. Here's what I found out. I had people that were on welfare come to our church. And here's what the Lord told me. You don't stay in our church and stay on welfare. It's not going to work. But here's also what I say. You don't maintain the same position at your workplace if you're going to work with us. Why? Because I look for you to become more and more influential and for you to climb up into greater roles of leadership. Why is the use of me, us, teaching you all these wonderful things if you remain in the same position? So if you walk with us, you have to get promoted. Why? Because if the rightful people are in charge of people, what, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, the Bible says, there are ch- shouts of joy. I want to see every man and woman of God who loves God, who knows how to pray. I want to see you e- be elevated in the areas where you are. Because I can trust that because you love God and you love people. People will be better off when you lead. So what I'm asking, it always begins by stepping up, but stepping up means that the little bit that God has given you, you work on it to make it the best it can be. Whatever thing that the Lord is, that's why the Bible says what? Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do that with all your heart as unto who? As unto God, not as unto man. What does that mean? You've never worked for a man in your life. God has been your boss from the beginning. On your job, you don't work for your boss. You don't work for the company that, ha- that hired you. You are actually employed by God. How did you get your job? Who did you ask? The Lord. Remember that prayer meeting? Pastor, please pray for me so I can get the job. We prayed. You got the job. That means who hired you? The Lord. So what? When you do that with all your heart is unto the Lord. You wake up in the morning and you begin to... Here's what I learned before I got into the ministry. When I worked for a Fortune 500 company for Hunting Consolidated, here's what I used to do every morning. From the time I used to take the first hour of, I would used to come an hour early to work, close myself behind closed doors, and pray for that company for the first hour. I prayed for everybody that worked in my department. Father, I want you to bless Jasper. Bless him and his family. Father, I pray for Milton right now that cause him to know your name. Lord, I lift up all these guys that were, that were working under. I began to pray for them. And, bring, and then I began to pray for the company. Lord, bless my company because here's what I say to the Lord. If you don't improve the company's bottom line by virtue of my being here, I don't ever want to raise from this company. But if this company's bottom line has improved because they hired me, I want my cut. So what am I saying? I don't want to raise if the company is not doing better because I'm here. But if the company is doing better because I believe in the anointing of Joseph, 
I believe in the anointing of Jacob. That Jacob in the house of Laban means what? Everything that Laban has becomes blessed. By why? Because you have Jacob living there. Because you have Joseph in Egypt. Egypt is blessed. Because you have Daniel in Babylon. Babylon is blessed. I believe you carry the mantle of God's blessing wherever you go. So this is the question. We used to bring the company before the Lord. The person I directly reported to was the marketing manager of the entire group. His name was Terence Wambila. And Terence would call me, Felix, it doesn't look like this month is going to be a good month for the company. And I said, Terence, don't worry, I'm going to pray about it. God will fix it. Ah, you and your Christian stuff. I said, brother, just believe me, man. So I'll go on my knees and say, Father, work a miracle. Let's prove to this man that you live. And I'll go on lockdown and the Lord will give me an idea. Sometimes just a little idea. Call so and so. Call the chief engineer of Renko Gold Mine. Boom, I strike a deal with him. Call so. And I, I, money began to come to the company. And Terrence would call me and say, ah, Felix, you know, can you teach the other people your system. I'm like, what system? <laughs> the system you're using. I said, well, I don't know if it will work for them. Because why? Because my system is the first hour at work I spend on my knees. And when God gives me ideas, I follow through. And then you know, how ah, you and your Christian stuff. You and your... Do you know what happened? Before I left that company, I get a phone call from Terrence and he says, Felix, I said, what's going on, man? He says, listen, I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to be a Christian. I'm like, oh, that's a nice way to start a conversation. What are you saying? I'm saying, I want my kids to end up going to Sunday school. Do you know of any good churches in our town? Are there any of your pastor friends where I can go and drop off my kids because I want them to grow up going to Sunday school like you did? I said, well, give me a second. I called one of my good pastor friends, Pastor Tom DeShell, and I said, Pastor Tom, there's a gentleman in my workplace who's trying to bring his kids. Bring him to the church. So Terrence and his wife used to go drop off their kids and you'll go play golf, whatever. Well, a few weeks later, they drop off their kids and they say, ah, let's just stay. They sit right in the back and, they, you know, and then before you know it, they're in the middle and then before you know it, front row. <laughs> Bible in one hand, notebook in the other hand. What happened? Shining a light in the marketplace. By what? By being. Most of us, we say, I'm a Christian at work and really you shouldn't because you're the laziest one in your group. Always late, always complaining, ugly to people. I'm a Christian. You're better off. Go undercover. Be an undercover Christian. Amen. Because if you're going to announce that you're a child of God, then ask for the anointing that was on the men of old, the anointing that was on Jacob. Say, Father, give me that anointing. Until everybody in my department knows that when I come in, the environment, the atmosphere changes. Anoint me like you anointed Jacob in the house of Laban. Anoint me like you anointed Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Anoint me like you anointed Joseph in the prison. Anoint me like you anointed Joseph as the second in command in Egypt. Father, anoint me like you anointed Abraham, that when he came to Palestine, it was a dry land in the middle of a doubt, drought. But by the time he was done there, it was a flourishing piece of property because of the blessing that he carried with him. Anoint me like you did the forefathers, my father, so that wherever you send me, may the blessing overflow until the people know that work was one way, but since this guy has come to this company, everything has changed. When a man's way is pleasing to the Lord, he'll cause even your enemies to live at peace with you. People that will otherwise despise you will need you. Why? Because of the mental of God's authority. And that's when you can tell them, my brother, what's, you know, what city are you in? Oh, you know, we live in such and such. Hey, we have a home group over there. You're welcome to come to our home group. Are you okay? And you end up showing, people end up showing up. Why? Because they can see the results. When people don't like anything about you, chances are that they're not coming to your faith. But when they see something on you that they say, I don't know what it is, they're just happier. They are more, they are helpful, they are loving. 
There's something about them. You will feel this church in 12 months, three times over. So it means you're an evangelist whoever God sends you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? What is the first thing you do? Step up and offer your ability. Why? It will force you to get on your face before God. When you're in charge of something, you offer, Father, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. When there's a training and said, who wants to do this training? Offer your help. Let me see what I can do. I'll put the training package together. And then, oh, Father, please help me. Please help me. Then you work at it, work at it, work at it, and do it right. And you begin to be elevated in your marketplace. Then when you talk about your God, everybody wants a part of your God. Are we okay? Yes or no? You say, but brother, you know, I, most of us, when we think of the anointing, I'm, 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 I'm almost done, we always think of the anointing related to church-related stuff. Nah. How many of you know who Bezalel is? Bezalel in the Bible. Builder of the tabernacle. Do you know who Bezalel was? He was a craftsman. He worked with his hands. So then what happens is that when the Lord was said to Moses, I want you to build me a sanctuary in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. Let them build me a sanctuary. That are, he says, the Lord says, I have put my anointing on Bezalel so that he can work with gold and with metal and with bronze and with purple. This man, the anointing, the same Holy Ghost that gave you tongues, the same Holy Spirit that gave you the gifts of healing and the discernment of spirits, when it touched Bezalel, it made him the best craftsman in a hundred you know, a mile radius. He was gifted. His hands was gifted because of the anointing of God. The Lord can anoint your hands for your job. The, the Lord can anoint you for your work you are doing right now. So that your ministry does not begin when you leave your job. Your ministry begins at work where you are. Because you're operating by the anointing of the Spirit of God. Can I show you a little secret that the Lord showed me that I was very, I was kind of surprised about. Because it's found in the book of Zechariah chapter 1. I'm going to end with that. Because the, what, I'm, what, what are you believing for, Felix? I'm believing for people that are supernaturally anointed to do practical things. You understand? Supernaturally anointed to do practical work. Not just to come in church and to pray. No, no, no. I'm talking about where you spend the most of your working hours on supernaturally anointed by the spirit of the living God to accomplish practical things. Because there's an anointing. The Holy Ghost is not just for church. It's for everywhere you go. Are we together? Let's look at uh, the book of Zechariah. Second last book of uh, the Old Testament. Chapter 1. There's a little scripture that is spoken there and it always kind of surprised me because it just didn't seem to make any sense. Here's what the Bible says. Then I raised my eyes and looked and there were four horns and I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? And so he answered and says, these are the horns that have scattered Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen and I said, what are these? And so it says, these are the horns that have scattered Judah and so that no one could lift up their head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them and to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah. It's, 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 so here's what it is. The Lord shows Zechariah a picture of four horns. When the Bible talks about horns, it's talking about authorities. It's talking about powers. And he asked them, who are these four horns? And he says, there are four powers that have scattered the people of God so that no one can lift up their heads, their head. And what was the Lord's answer? Did he give four soldiers? No. What did the Lord do in response to the four horns? He raised up four craftsmen. 
Do you know what is the term for craftsmen? It means four iron workers. It means four carpenters. It means four people that are in what are called the journeyman arts, which is carpentry, joinery, and, and mason work. That term could mean any one of those. So here's the question. When the four authorities rose up against the people of God, the Lord rose, raised up four craftsmen, not four preachers, four craftsmen. <laughs> craftsmen? To counter four powers? What is it symbolic of? It's symbolic of people anointed for practical things. Because what are craftsmen? They know how to build, but how do they build? They work according to a plan. They work according to systems. They know how to, they are systematic thinkers. The Lord raised up four systematic thinkers to counter four authorities of the devil that were scattering his people. He did not raise up four soldiers. He did not raise up four preachers. He raised up four craftsmen, people that work the journeyman arts. Why? Because the Lord will grant you the skill. There's a skill. Please hear me. There's a skill to overcome every plan of the enemy. Any plan the enemy has against this nation, heaven is another system to counter that. When you know the system of God to counter the work of evil, when, and you master the skill of heaven to counter the work of the enemy, without raising a sword and without fighting a battle, the Lord can give you the genius or the ability or the mental capacity to counter every demonic structure. Everything the devil sets up is systematic. Let me give you an example with India. Right now what's happening with India and the re-rise of the Modi government and the re-Hinduization of India, let me tell you what happened years ago. You see, it was not always easy to preach the gospel in India. For many years, it was difficult. For many years, men of God that tried to start ministries, pastor, you can testify to this. It was a few years ago when you can work hard and not get any results. I had a very good pastor, you know, a brother friend of mine, you know, uh, Dr. Johnson in Houston. He was in Cali, Calcutta for years. He says, Felix, we worked for 20 years. We hardly got anything going. Then all of a sudden, in one year, we had more results than we had in 20 years of teaching and preaching. More people were getting saved. More churches were filling up. But what most people did not understand is what caused that. Do you know what caused this? In the late 80s and early 90s, a movement of intercessors that were based at the World Prayer Center in Colorado Springs lifted up a prayer campaign, a global prayer campaign for what they called the 1040 window. The 1040 window is the longitude and latitude 10 and 40. It's the area where India is. It's an area where it's part of the Middle East countries are within the 1040 window. I was in Zimbabwe. You understand? In the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And we were fasting and praying for the 1040 window in Zimbabwe. A song was written, here I am my father, waiting for your word. Speak and I will listen. Show me how to serve a man who needs your mercy and a child who's lost her way. Teach me how to, um, to, to, to care as I pray, as I pray, as I pray for the people on your heart. I believe that if I seek you, I can touch the people on your heart. All around the globe, a systematic prayer campaign was pointed at India. Africa was pointing at India. America was pointing at India. The Middle East countries were pointing at India, saturating India with prayers. And now all of a sudden, a ministry that was dry for 20, 30 years was all of a sudden producing fruit. And when that happened, we began to see churches grow. People would come out to, from the America to preach 70,000 people, 80,000 people, 100,000. Benny Hinn had 400,000 people in an open field preaching in India. It looked like it was easy going. Why? Because there was a systematic campaign. Then what happened? Then people forgot. And what happened? Prayer stopped for the 1040 window. And what is happening? The re-emerging of the old system. 
to shut out the preaching of the gospel in that area. How do we regain ground? Systematic thinking. Because for every system of the devil, the Lord has gifted people with the spiritual system to counter the work of the enemy. What happens if the church, the church in India, now that we're grown and now that we're hundreds of us in, you go to Hyderabad, 40,000, you know, um, uh, M.A. church, you know, so many thousands, and so-and-so's church, so many thousands, in Kerala, thousands here, 40,000. What was happening now? A comfortability begins to set in. And we forget that the demonic structure we pushed away is going to try and push back. And then people are focused on us. We forget how to pray. The enemy begins to remake that ground. How do we force the enemy out of that territory again? Systems. You need a system of prayer and intercession. Because you dismantle a demonic system with a system. So what does the Lord raise? Systematic thinkers. Craftsmen. Preachers. People that know how to administer. And he uses them to dismantle. Who are those people? Find a mirror. Look at it. That's the person. You, me, we. I don't care how small the part you play. Play your part. It begins by what? Having the heart to step up and say, Father, I want to exist for more than just me and my family. I want to exist for more than just our little church. I want to exist for the kingdom of God. So use me. And as you make yourself available, the Lord begins to touch your heart with skills and he begins to touch your mind with systems and he gives you the system for, so that Egypt can eat in the time of famine. The Lord touched the mind of Joseph and he came up with a plan. What am I asking for? I'm asking for an anointing. For what? For divine end time leaders. Problem solvers. Anointed, appointed by God. For such a time as this. What is the first thing by which God can accomplish this? Step up and make yourself available. Begin by saying, Lord, I'm, I'm no longer looking at what others can do for you. I'm availing myself for what I can do. What me and my house can do. If you can use anybody, use us, Lord. I want to play my part, no matter how small, no matter how big. I want to be faithful to play my part. Now, if this is you and you can honestly say to me, I want that anointing for practical ability. I want that anointing for divine wisdom and understanding so the Lord can dismantle demonic systems through me. I'm availing myself. I'm showing up for work. And I'm saying, I didn't that, Ava. I'm saying, here I am, Lord. If you're going to use anybody, use me. If that's you and you absolutely mean it, Pastor, I want us to pray for this congregation. I want us to lay hands on them and believe. Uh, here's what I know. There is an anointing. There is an anointing of wisdom. Wisdom is spiritual. You understand? Wisdom is not the province of study. You can study all your life and still not be wise. But when the spirit of God hits you, he is also called the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I'm asking that each one of us, the Lord give us divine capability, divine thinking, that you think from heaven's frequency, that you are a divine problem solver. So that wherever we are, in 12 months, I want to petition the throne of God. I don't care what you do for work, wherever you are. I'm praying the Lord will get you promoted in the next 12 months. Why? Because you love God too much to have people that don't love God lead you. It's time for you to rise. If you are there and you heard God through my speaking, and you don't look as if this is coming from me, but you can hear God in the many words I've tried to use tonight, and you hear what God is saying to you, and you say, anoint me, Father. As we get up right now, I want us to stand up and I want us to fill this altar and say, Lord, anoint me, anoint me, anoint me. If I can have some music in the background, Reggie, whether you play an instrument or you play a song in the back, we want to pray. Did you get that oil for me, my brother? If that oil is there, can you bring that anointing oil?
Salerebeko sotoloro moko shiakana ramadai. Ira la ramanderebeko sotoloro moko sumadai. Reta la rabako sotoloro moko sukularakai. Anointing, 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 anointing. Holy Ghost, I pray that touch your people's minds, touch our minds with strategic thinking, touch our hearts to see from divine perspective. My God, I pray that the mind of Christ may be stored within us. For such a time as this, it's time for you to rise. The day of being average is over. The day of being average is over. For right now, you can come up and say, anoint me, Father. Anoint me with your precious Holy Spirit, with anointing of wisdom, with anointing of understanding, with the anointing of a problem solver. If that is you, I want you to come up. Any one of you that says, Lord, I want you to anoint me. For such a time as this, I want to be anointed. I want you to come up. I want you to come up. You know in your heart the Lord was targeting you and talking to you. And you say, Father, activate the anointing of a problem solver in my life. And as you come up, begin to talk to the Lord and say, Father, touch my heart. Tell him, Father, touch my mind. Father, give me systems, systematic thinking. So I know how to dismantle the, 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 the force of our enemy. And we can have a generation separated unto God. There's a wisdom key for everything you need to accomplish in life. There's a wisdom key that comes from the Holy Spirit. Can everybody just take one step forward? One step forward. So the ones in the back can come up. For everything you want to accomplish in the kingdom of God, there's a wisdom key. There's a wisdom key that comes from the Spirit of the living God. Anoint us, Father. Anoint us, Lord Jesus. Come on, when you're here, begin to talk to the Lord. Lay your life down before him. Talk to him about your present and about your future. When the right people don't step up, the wrong people end up in charge. We are going to turn this thing around. From this day forward, we're turning it around. Meaning you that are anointed and called by God, step up! Step up! Believe God to use you. Believe God to accomplish great things through you. And you say, Felix, I don't feel ready. Nobody ever feels ready. Step up anyway. Even when you don't feel ready. Watch what God will do through you. You say, my brother, I don't know if I'm gifted enough. It's not about you, it's about him. He is gifted enough. And he can be gifted through you. Come on, talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord, talk to the Lord. Give him your heart, your mind, your hands, your feet, your voice. Dedicate them to him right now for the sake of the kingdom of God. The Lord will do mighty things through you. The Lord will accomplish great things through you. Lives and hearts dedicated to the Lord. Holy Ghost, I thank you for your presence here. Spirit of the living God, fill each vessel until they overflow. Let the anointed one step up. Let the fruitful one step up. Father, let the effervescent, the happy ones, the joyful ones step up. In the name of Jesus Christ. The bramble will not rule over us. The bramble bush will not rule over us. Come on, men and women of God, talk to the Lord. Give Him your heart, give Him your life. Dedicate yourself fully to be used by Him. He's already working this altar. He's touching lives right now. He's hearing your voice. Talk to Him right now. 
Come on, tell him my life belongs to you, my master. Tell him my life belongs to you, my Lord. Tell him my mind belongs to you, my father. Tell him as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. There's an anointing in this house right now. The anointing of the Holy Ghost to raise you up from where you are and to propel you to the place of your divine calling. The place of your divine anointing. Give your mind to the Lord. Say, Father, think your thoughts through me. Think divine thoughts through me. My mind belongs to you. Come and talk to the Lord. He's listening. Come on, family. Come on, family. Let's talk to the Lord. For such a time as this. Raised up for such a time as this.